David is one of the most compelling and loved characters in the Old Testament. In this series, we will look at the highs and lows of the shepherd boy who became king. He's both an example of faith and a cautionary tale about human brokenness. Ultimately, his life is a foreshadow of someone greater. In David, we see glimpses of what is to come. This series is about seeing Jesus through David so that we might see the King of Kings and True Shepherd even more clearly. All right, hi. My name is Raul, if we haven't met before. It's good to have you with us. Um, I work here for Brad, and um, I'm trying out this thing. Uh, What do we think? Okay, okay. Trying it out. You know, I thought it's going to get warmer. I want to stay ahead of the heat. And I forgot what it feels like just to have that breeze on the back of your neck. It's amazing. Um, Next week, I'll come with a clip, and we'll try that out. Um, But it's good to have you with us. We have been in a series looking at the life of David from the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. And these are history books, but they're not just history books. They tell the story of how God works with people to bring about his redemptive purposes. And they also show us that God works in spite of people to accomplish this. God brings his redemption even in the face of people's failures and imperfections. And we're at the point in this story where Saul and David are in conflict. David's life and Saul's reign hang in the balance, and caught in the middle is Saul's son and David's ally, Jonathan. And today we're looking at one of the most well-known friendships in the Bible— It's the story of Jonathan and David, and often it's interpreted with a virtuous lens, challenging us to take up specific qualities of good friendships, but I think the story offers more than that. What we see in their story is telling for our story. It shows us that God does not leave us alone when he calls us. It shows us that God is looking out for us. It shows us that when we see what God is doing and trust him, that we can be used for his purposes. And so I've titled this talk, God's Looking Out. God's Looking Out. Um, And Christina is going to come read the text for us. So let's welcome Christina. Um, 1 Samuel 20, 1 through 17. Then David fled from Naoth at Ramah and went to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he is trying to kill me? Never, Jonathan replied. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without letting me know. Why would he hide this from me? It isn't so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, There is only a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, Whatever you want me to do, I'll do for you. So David said, Look, tomorrow is the new moon feast, and I am supposed to dine with a king. But let me go and hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow. If your father misses me at all, tell him, David earnestly asked my permission to hurry to Bethlehem, his hometown, 
because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan. If he says, very well, then your servant is safe. But if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. As for you, show kindness to your servant, for you have brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I am guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? Never, Jonathan said. If I had the least inkling that my father was determined to harm me, wouldn't I tell you? David asks, who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? Come, Jonathan said, let's go out in the field. So they went there together. Then Jonathan said to David, I swear by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed toward you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with Jonathan, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. But show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. Amen. Thanks, Christina. So chapters 18 through 20 tell us about David serving in Saul's royal household. David went from being a forgotten shepherd boy to a proven warrior serving in Saul's court. He went from being in the presence of the sheep to being in the presence of a king. And you can imagine what that must have been like for him. It's a bit like Cousin Greg going from working at the family amusement park as a mascot to then being in the headquarters of the family business in the presence of Logan Roy, the boss. And that just checks off our succession reference. It's been the trend, this uh, series. But David goes from being in the fields to being in the palace. And as David gets settled into Saul's court, things don't go as he expects. As Ed shared last week, Saul is threatened by David and he attempts to kill him. And by chapter 20, David ran from Saul to tell Jonathan, but Jonathan doesn't really believe David. I mean, can you imagine telling your best friend that their parents are out to kill you? I imagine David was like, look, bro, we're at that point in our relationship. I can be real with you. Your dad is trying to kill me. And Jonathan's probably like, you know what? I don't know about that. He may have just woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Maybe they forgot to bring him his coffee in the morning. They probably forgot to put collagen in his coffee. I'll go have a look. And so Jonathan looks out for David. He goes to Saul to find out for himself whether or not he actually wants David killed. And Saul and Jonathan are at the new moon feast. This was a festival that marked the beginning of the month. All work was stopped. People were given time and space to go and make sacrifices. And the king was the figurehead. So you can imagine, like, Saul's face on posters, 
on little napkins, on paper cups. He was the core figure. And at the feast, as they're sitting around a table and um, sharing a meal, Saul turns over to Jonathan and he says, hey, where's, where's your buddy David? And Jonathan says, oh, dad, about that. You see, what had happened was um, he had some things uh, to do at home. He needed to go be with his family, so I excused him. And at this point, Saul just loses it. He throws a spear at Jonathan and says to him, out of uh, chapter 20, verse 31, he says to Jonathan, as long as the son of Jesse lives, he doesn't even name David, he says, as long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. And this marks a turning point in David's life. Jonathan returns to the field, he signals to David, and David shows up, and Jonathan confirms the news. He says, dude, dad is trying to kill you. You gotta go. And I imagine David gets this pit in his stomach as his, as his fear becomes a reality. And it's likely that David in that moment felt misunderstood, betrayed, and confused. And the scene ends with Saul, I'm sorry, with David and Jonathan holding one another, weeping as they part ways. And Jonathan reassures David with these words. He says, we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord. In other words, Jonathan is saying, my friendship with you is like that of the Lord's. I won't betray you. I won't leave you alone. I will look out for you. And have you ever been in David's shoes? Have you ever felt like instead of progressing, you're regressing? Has it ever felt like suddenly everyone has pulled away from you? I think I've only ever had one panic attack, and it was about this. I was in a period of change. I recently transitioned out of my uh, previous ministry job and was working in coffee. I had just graduated college, and things were changing faster than I had expected. And so I went backpacking to clear my head and to get some time to be with Jesus. And I went out and hiked several miles into the mountains. I set up my camp. I had dinner. And then I went to bed. And in the middle of the night, I woke up full of anxiety. It was like a weight crushing my chest as I felt completely alone and confused in all of this transition. Loneliness is something that we all experience from time to time, isn't it? But recently, it seems like this has become a more established feeling. Even with technology and social media, which are meant to bring us together, the feeling and experience of loneliness still lingers. And this week, I read an article in the New York Times called My AI Lover. And it followed three people who had an emotional, romantic connection with an AI avatar. They signed up to be paired with this avatar because they longed for connection and intimacy. 
And I think what this shows, regardless of what we think about AI, what it shows is, it, is the length that we will go to treat loneliness. Loneliness has deepened in this country since the pandemic. A recent study by Harvard found that 36% of respondents reported feeling serious loneliness, feeling lonely frequently or all the time. And I think what this suggests is that we are in need of friendships. We are in need of community. We need Jonathans. We need godly friendships. Because this is how God looks out for us. Community is God's antidote to loneliness. God builds us up, he heals us, he empowers us, and he commissions us all within community, all within godly friendships. And the thing is, if we're not actively investing in godly friendships, when the storm comes, we won't have much to draw on. On the other hand, when we're establishing godly friendships, we have a resource that God can draw on to build us up. Community is like a well that God can draw on to give us a drink of water. It's like a storehouse that we can go to when we're in need. And if we're, if we're without community, it's like being in Palm Springs and not having anything to drink. If we are outside of godly friendships, it's like having a fridge but no food. And so we need to be establishing community. We need to be establishing friendships. And that's the case with David and Jonathan. They had established a bond. Chapter 18 says that they became one in spirit. Another translation says their souls were knit together. And the imagery here is of two different threads, two different thread colors being woven together to form a single image or a single pattern. They shared an emotional bond, a united vision. They were two peas in a pod. And their friendship was characterized by two things. And it's repeated in the text. And whenever you see repetition, as you read your Bible, as you read the scriptures, and you come across repetition, it's like the author is highlighting something for you. It's like they really want you to pay attention to this thing. It's a repeated phrase that brackets David's time in Saul's court. The author writes in 18.3, it says, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. In 2016, it says, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David because he loved him as himself. And the first repeated words are around covenant. Jonathan makes a covenant with David and his descendants. And covenants were binding treaties. They were agreements to partnership. Covenants bound people to work alongside one another towards a common goal. And this would have been controversial. Because from Saul's lens, Jonathan is partnering with the opponent. He's partnering with a threat. But from the author's lens... Jonathan is indirectly partnering with God to see God's purposes fulfilled. From the jump, Jonathan sees that God has placed David in the royal court. 
Jonathan isn't threatened. He isn't jealous. He sees that God is setting up David to be the next king. And he doesn't fight it. Instead, he steps aside and says, God, carry out your plan. He does what we would consider foolish. He trades places with David. Chapter 18, verse 4 says this. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword and his bow and his belt. This is my bathrobe. It's very nice. It's, um, it's uh, Turkish linen. Um, what do we think about the color? It's good, right? I'm just kidding. This is my wife's robe. <laughs> um, but clothing was significant in the ancient Near East. People had very little clothes. These were the days before fast fashion and exploitation of textile workers, and so clothing was limited, which meant that clothing became woven in with identity. And Jonathan, being the prince and heir to the throne, he would have owned a robe much nicer than this one. A robe that was an identity marker. It marked him as royalty. It marked him as next in line to rule. In the same way that a goalie's uniform marks, marks them apart from the rest of the team, so it was with Jonathan's robe. But instead of holding on to the robe, instead of holding on to his rightful position, he gives it up. He has faith that God is behind David. He's, Jonathan steps out of God's way and says, I'm going to bless what God is doing, not because I can get something out of it, not because there's something in it for me, but because he trusts God. So he takes it off, puts it on Jonathan. He takes it off, puts it on David, and he says, I'm switching places with you. Los Angeles is a very competitive city. There's often a lot of pressure to perform. And have you ever found yourself thinking that if that person succeeds, then I won't? The story in our heads is if the competitor gets the role, if that person gets a position, if they get that gig, then I'm doomed. The narrative is, if they succeed, you lose. And what this narrative does is it breeds anxiety. It breeds shallow relationships. But faith in God says that if they succeed, God will still look out for me. When we put our faith in Jesus, even in the face of less than ideal scenarios, God promises to be with us. Jesus reminds us that when we experience hardship, when we experience loss, when we experience less than ideal situations, don't be afraid because he's already overcome. And so you and I can trust God. And this faith narrative gives room for depth in relationships because my neighbor no longer becomes my competitor. My neighbor, no, my community no longer becomes somebody I need to impress. 
When we trust God, we become better partners with one another. And so Jonathan partnered with David because he trusted God. And this leads me to ask, what areas can we be trusting God more in? So that we may be better partners to those in our community. So that we may be more available partners with God to see his kingdom come. The other repeated word here is love. And in the text, it means commitment. It means faithfulness. It's the kind of love that sticks. It's the basis for Jonathan and David's partnership. Wednesday was National Go Skate Day. Um, In case uh, you didn't know, we're going to get a skateboard ramp built in the parking lot just for Ryan, Noah, and I. Um, But Ryan, Noah, and I went to a local skate shop, and we saw um, pro and amateur skaters just shred this ramp. It was impressive. Here's a photo of me not shredding the ramp. That's that's all I can do. But as, as I was kind of in this setting again, it took me back to my high school days of skateboarding, and I remembered one of the more foolish things I did for a friend. Him and I were skating this loading dock, and as we were going up and down, my friend Michael was running to jump onto his skateboard, and as he did that, he hit the edge of the board with his toe and completely bent his nail backwards. It was literally at a 90-degree angle. And so he was in so much pain, he couldn't walk. And we were pretty far from where we lived, and I knew I needed to get him home, But this was before the day, this was before any of us had cell phones. And so we did the only thing we knew we could do. I said, bro, you got to sit crisscross applesauce on that skateboard and I'm going to push you home. And so he did. He sat crisscross applesauce on the skateboard. And for a whole hour, I pushed him down the streets of downtown LA until we got home. People were driving by, they were honking, people were giving us weird stares because we looked foolish, but we were loyal to one another. And loyalty and love will make you do some foolish things sometimes. Like drive a friend to LAX. (laughs) This is the equivalent of what Jonathan did. It's the kind of loyal love that they had seen God demonstrate. In verse 14, Jonathan says, show me unfailing, love, unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness. The Lord's kindness is unconditional. It's love without limits. God's loyal love doesn't fade. It doesn't expire. It doesn't fail. Faithfulness means that we can count on God's love. It means that no one is beyond God's love, even when we're at our lowest, even when we're at our loneliest, God's love doesn't fail us then. I was praying this week, um, just ahead of today, for you guys, for me, for um, just our, our time together, and, and I wasn't saying much. That's a window into my prayer life. Um, I was listening to Spanish worship songs, and 
And there's a song that really resonates with me, and I'm going to sing it for you because I love you and I have, I don't care about my voice. But here we go. It goes like this. It goes, Tu fidelidad es grande. Tu fidelidad. Na, 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 na. Nadie como tú. Bendito Dios. Grande es tu fidelidad. And that's my audition for the worship team. Ben said no. <laughs> but that, that word, the, those phrases, it literally means great is your faithfulness. And as I was kind of just meditating on these words and, and, and singing along, I just felt this rush of emotion come over me as I recalled all the moments God has been faithful to us as a church. You may not know this, but this church was started in Culver City. Ed and Hannah landed in Culver City, started the church with like, three people in their living room. And then we moved to Los Feliz. And then the pandemic happened and we moved online. And then after, as we were coming out of the pandemic, God provided the space for us to meet in. When there was no other, uh, when there was no other um, spaces available. And in it all, God has been faithful week after week, day after day, God visits us even when we don't deserve it. He's looked after us even when we've made mistakes. He is with us for the long haul. God has provided for this community. He has protected this community. He's been present with this community. And so I'm just here to say God is faithful. God is loyal. And that is what informed Jonathan and David's friendship. It's what they knew. It's what they experienced. And we need to know the love of God if we're going to be the kind of community that is marked by loyal love. Paul's prayer for the church is that we would grasp the love of God that we would take it for ourselves, that we would know his love, how wide, how long, how deep, how high his love is for us. And we can't give what we haven't received, right? We can't, we, we need to receive and grasp the love that God has for us so that we can be friends that God uses to look out for others. Some chapters later, as David is running for his life, he's on the run, he's in the wilderness, um, he is fleeing from Saul, he meets up with Jonathan. This is for Samuel 23, 15, 16. It says this, it says, while David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son, Jonathan, went to Horish, and this is my favorite bit. He helped him find strength in God. That's the kind of friendship that we're going after. That's the kind of friendship that God uses to build us up. It's the kind of friendship that says, I'm not just going to console you. I'm not just going to comfort you. I'm going to build you up. 
I'm going to help you see that God is looking out for you. I'm going to encourage your faith. But I think too often, and I've seen this with um, people in, in my age bracket, but too often we're quick to ditch God. We're quick to affirm doubts instead of encouraging faith. And so can I challenge us to be the friend that is so overflowing with God's love and faith that we just strengthen people wherever we go? May we be the godly community that is overflowing with God's presence. May we be carriers of God's loyal love. May we be, may we be carriers and take it to those who feel counted out. May we take it to those who feel depleted. May we be people who help others find their strength in God. Jonathan knew the loyal love of God and was able to strengthen David in it. And when we have the, this loyal love of God coursing through us, when it's flowing through us, God can use it to look after others. God uses godly friendships, godly community to look after us. And the more surrounded we are by it, the more likely we are to be strengthened in him. This uh, moment out of chapter 23 was likely the last time Saul and da uh, David and Jonathan saw one another. The book of 1 Samuel ends with Saul and Jonathan being killed in battle. And 2 Samuel begins with news of this reaching David. And David mourns Jonathan. He says this in 2 Samuel 1.26. He says, I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. And notice David doesn't call Jonathan his friend. He calls him his brother. This is a... This familial relationship was the strongest social tie in the ancient Near East. Brothers were equals who didn't take advantage of one another. They were protectors who looked after each other. They were partners committed in unity. They were bound by loyal love. And this loyal love isn't something that ends with Jonathan. David's loyal love extends beyond Jonathan to the next generation. In 2 Samuel, David seeks out Jonathan's descendants, and he finds a son, and he brings him to the royal table. And the only time a ruling king would ask for a descendant of a former king was to kill them, because they were threats to power. But David does the opposite. He brings in Jonathan's son and he says, enjoy my table. Enjoy my kingdom. Enjoy all that I have. He shows him loyal love. Jonathan was David's brother. They were a surrogate family. They were spiritual siblings. And the Bible speaks of Jesus as our brother. In Mark, Jesus refers to his followers as his siblings. You may be familiar with this scene out of uh, Mark chapter 3. 
It says a crowd was sitting around Jesus and they told him, hey, your mom and your brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus turns to them and he says, who are my brothers? Who is my mother? He asked. And then he looked at those seated around him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. And Hebrews reiterates this point that you and I are siblings with Jesus. It reads, this is Hebrews 2.11, it reads, Jesus who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call you and I brothers and sisters. And this is an image we don't often consider is it? So what does it mean that Jesus is our brother? It means that in him, we have the perfect brother and friend. Jesus is the ultimate realization of God looking after us. He is the perfect Jonathan. And if you want to know God, whether or not God is looking out for you, just look to Jesus. He's the one who accompanies us. He's the one who binds us to himself. He's the one who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is the protector of our souls. And he is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you because when we put our faith in him, we share in his status as children to the Father. It means that his status as a son is transferred over to us. In other words, Jesus gives us his robe. He puts the robe, I'm struggling here. He puts the robe of royalty over us. And unlike with Jonathan, when Jesus gives us his robe, it's of no loss to him. Jesus remains the royal son once and for all, and no one can take that away. Nobody can undo what Jesus did. And so you are clothed with the royal robe of sonship. And in the Bible, that is a gender-inclusive term. It's not based on gender. It's based on status. In other words, you are not an orphan. You are a royal child. You are not insignificant. You have the unlimited love and resource of your Father in heaven. And so Jesus clothes us with the status of a royal son. This is who Jesus makes us to be. He demonstrates his loyal love to us. He does the most foolish thing, more foolish than Jonathan giving up his rightful place to the throne. Jesus and his foolishness goes beyond that. He endures the cross. He went to the cross to undo all that robs us. He, he goes to the cross to free us from loneliness. He went to the cross to restore us to the Father. He went so that we won't be orphans any longer. Jesus, our brother, brings us into the family. 
and it is one of mutual partnership and loyal love. It is one that fights loneliness. It is one that stands in solidarity. It says, my well-being is bound up in your well-being. When you rejoice, I rejoice. When you suffer, I suffer. This is how God looks after us. So if I can have the band come up, we're going um, to end here. I don't want to romanticize this. Working towards this kind of community is really tough. And it takes effort. And it takes the Holy Spirit. It takes more than just seeing one another. It requires presence. And so before we sing and pray at the front as we normally do, I want us to feel community to embody presence. I'm going to pray for us, um, and I invite you to embody presence with me by putting a hand on the shoulder of the person next to you. You don't have to do this, but this kind of godly community, the godly community that we're going after, it requires us to feel It requires holy touch. And so gently place a hand on... um, Nellie, would you come up with me, actually? Gently place a hand on the shoulder of the person next to you. And would you join me in um, just praying that God would do this in our community? Come, Holy Spirit. I thank you that you love your church. Thank you that you love each and every one of us in here. And I thank you for the faithfulness that you've shown us, that you've been with us, that you've protected us, that you've provided us, that you've spoken to us, that you've been in our midst. And God, as you cast this vision ahead of us, a vision for godly community, one that stands in solidarity, one that fights loneliness, would you empower us with your spirit to be the kind of community that strengthens others in you? Would you help us to be carriers of your loyal love, And for any of us who find loneliness a very real thing, would you come near and surround them with community? Thank you that you're here. Thank you that you're with us. And we just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be working this in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.